0: Well, let's read together from God's word as we find it in the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, it's on page 991 if you're using the church Bible. And we're going to read from verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be focusing particularly on verse 18 of this passage, but uh, we want to see the context in which this verse comes, and so we read from verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please turn again in God's word to that passage that we read together from Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16, and in particular to verse 18. Why does Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church exist? Well, we could answer that question in a number of different ways, and they would all be true. One way to answer the question would be to say that in 1896, uh, almost half the members of Grosvenor Road Reformed Presbyterian Church wanted to call the Reverend James Dick to be their pastor. And when that vote was defeated by a very small margin, uh, those members decided that they would leave Grosvenor Road and become uh, a new congregation in Belfast with James Dick as their minister. And so they bought an old Baptist church in Trinity Street uh, at the end of the Anthem Road, just off Carlisle Circus. And under Professor Dick's ministry, uh, the congregation grew considerably uh, over the following 20 years or so. So that is one answer to the question, why does Trinity exist? Another answer is to go back to 1975. Because of A diminishing number of members because of the Troubles and other challenges associated with uh, a less than ideal location uh, in a very troubled part of Belfast during the Troubles. A group of about 20 members decided that they would relocate Trinity Street Church to the suburbs of Newton Abbey. Uh, The presbytery thought that it would be better for them to amalgamate with one or other of the other Belfast congregations, but they decided not to do that and instead to step out in faith and to come to Newton Abbey. They called Ted Donnelly, whose preaching gifts, along with the congregation's emphasis on loving fellowship and deep care for one another, led to steady growth over the next eight years. And we could answer the question, why does Trinity RP Church exist, by going to 1983. The sacrificial giving of those few members, and a huge amount of practical work that was done on site by the whole congregation, which involved... Uh, I understand no small amount of child labor, uh, led to this meeting house being built here in Mosley uh, in 1983. All of those things are true. They all answer the question, why does Trinity RP Church exist? But the ultimate answer, the definitive answer to that question, goes back much further than 1983, or even 1896. It is a much more fundamental answer to the question. And the answer is found in Matthew 16, verse 18, where the Lord Jesus says this, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word my there is emphatic in the original language. It's as though uh, Matthew is underlining it with red pen and highlighting it. And also the word my is a very unusual word on Jesus' lips. He rarely calls anything his. And so whenever he does, it comes home with great force. The church, you see, is not a human project. Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church is not the creation of James Dick or Ted Donnelly or anyone else. Ultimately it is the supernatural work of Jesus Christ. So I want us to think about this verse this morning under four simple headings. First of all the meaning of the church, the meaning Of the church. Jesus says, I will build my church. What is a church? What is the church? What do people think goes on behind these doors on a Sunday? Uh, Maybe this is your first time here uh, inside this building and you've driven past and you've often wondered that yourself. What is the church? Well, it's not a social club for people of a kind of religious bent who like singing and listening to sermons and thinking about the world to come. That's not what the church is. It's not a psychological support group to help weak people on the brink of a nervous breakdown to cope with the harsh realities of life. It's not a place to send children, to keep them out of mischief for a few hours and try to instill in them some good moral principles. Many people think that that is exactly what the church is, one or all of those things. But when Jesus says here that he will build his church, he's using a word that the disciples listening to him would have been very familiar with because it was a word that had been used for 1,500 years in the Old Testament to describe the people of Israel. God called the people of Israel out of the world to be different from the rest of the world, to be holy, to belong to him, to be his prized possession, to worship him and serve Him, and love Him, and tell the rest of the world all about Him. They were to be set apart from the other nations. They were to live every single part of their lives by God's Word. God began by miraculously rescuing them from slavery in Egypt where they spent their days doing hard labor for the Pharaoh. And then after he saved them, after he brought them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, he gave them his law so that they would know how to live as his holy people in the world. And he promised that he would be with them. And that group of people, that holy people, where the church, God's people called out from the world to live for him and to be different. And now Jesus is saying, I will build my church. And he's not talking about a different church. He's not talking about a rival church that's going to replace the church of the Old Testament. People are still being saved from slavery. They're still being called out of the world to live lives for God. But what Jesus is talking about here is an expansion of the church, uh, an extension of the church. It's the same building that has been there for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Old Testament, but now it's going to undergo a massive renovation program. In fact, a good way to think about it is to think about these buildings here that we're in today. In 1982, the congregation purchased this site where the old Mossley Primary School was and the headmaster's house. And that old schoolroom was incorporated into the new building. Uh, you'll, you'll see it later if you haven't seen it before. The Minor Hall, that was the old Mossley schoolroom. And then this auditorium and the classrooms around it were added on at the front. And then a few years later in 2001, uh, this big hall was added at the back. It, it was the Mosley school, but it has been extended. It has been expanded. It's the same building in a sense. There's continuity, but it is also very, very different And that's what Jesus is announcing here in this verse. I will build my church. In the Old Testament, the church was almost entirely for Jews. And if someone from another nation wanted to join the church, then he or she had to become a Jew. But the Old Testament prophets looked forward to a day when God's Messiah would come into the world and throw open the doors of the church so that men and women of all nations and all languages could come in. And that is what Jesus is announcing here. Remember what has just happened. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ And Jesus responds here by saying, as it were, you're right, Peter. I am the Messiah. And I'm going to do exactly what the prophecies of the Old Testament said that the Messiah would do. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to gather in men and women and children from every nation under heaven. I'm going to extend the church. I'm going to make it much much bigger. This is the halfway point, the turning point in Matthew's gospel. And perhaps you remember the way that Matthew's gospel ends, the last words that Jesus speaks in this gospel. He sends his followers out and commands them to make disciples of all nations, go out into all the nations of the world, to the ends of the earth, and bring in men and women and boys and girls to be set apart for God. Just like Israel was in the Old Testament. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exciting thought. It's a stirring thought, isn't it? To think that you and I here today, this morning, we are part of the fulfillment of these prophecies. As we sit here reading the very words that Jesus spoke and singing praise from the songbook of the church. At this moment, thousands of people, tens of thousands perhaps, all over Newton Abbey and Belfast are singing praise to the God of Israel. And they're reading from the scriptures that came out of Palestine, and they're trusting in a Jewish Messiah. And we're doing it because Jesus said, I will build my church. It's coming true. It's been coming true for 2,000 years. So what is the church? It is people saved by Jesus Christ from all the nations, called out from the world to live holy lives for him in the world. The meaning of the church. But then, secondly, we see here the builder of the church the builder of the church. How does Jesus build his church? Probably all have some idea of how this church building was built. Kinds of steps involved. Some of you here remember probably every single step in great detail. Uh, you can see that the, the, the photographic record of of some of those steps, some of that long process. Uh, in, in the photographs out in the foyer after the service. How did Jesus go about building his church? Well, the New Testament tells us that he did it by laying down his life for the people that he would bring into it. It says in Acts 20, verse 28, the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's the price that Jesus paid to build the church. It's a high price, isn't it? I wonder, do you know what the world's most expensive building is? I had a few guesses in mind, and then I googled it. Uh, and found out that the most expensive building in the world by a hundred times more than the next most expensive building in the world is the Great Mosque of Mecca, which has been expanded so that it can hold two and a half million pilgrims. And the cost of this expansion is $100 billion. It is by far the most expensive building in the world. And yet that is nothing. That is small change. That is chicken feet compared to the cost of building the church, the blood of the Holy Son of God. Why was that the price for building the church? Why is the price so high to build the church? We remember what the church is. The church is made up of men and women who are called to be holy, called to be God's special people, His prized possession, people who are going to love God and worship Him and serve Him and obey Him. That's what the church is. But the problem is that that's not what people are like by nature. By nature, Human beings don't want anything to do with God. And we rebel against him from our earliest days. We don't do the things that he tells us that we should do. We don't care about his commandments. We're not interested in involving him in our lives in any way. We don't ask him how he wants us to live. We don't care how he wants us to live. And that is a wicked thing. And so we deserve nothing from God but his wrath. And that's why Jesus needed to shed his blood in order to build the church. He came into the world to reconcile rebels like us to God. And he did that by taking the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion on the cross. And he calls people then to turn from their rebellion. And in fact, we have his own words for this in verse 24. Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what Jesus is calling people to do. Turn away from your own old rebellious way of life. And follow me. And when people hear his voice and when they respond to his words, they become part of this church that Jesus is building. Now, they might hear the voice of Jesus in all kinds of ways. They might hear his voice in the preaching of a sermon like this one, or they might hear the voice of Jesus through a friend sharing the good news of the Christian message over coffee. They might hear the voice of Jesus as they read the scriptures or a Christian book. They might hear the voice of Jesus in the teaching and in the example of their parents. But however it comes, however that call comes, Jesus Christ is the one who's doing the building. He uses us, but he is the builder. It's his voice that they hear. And because the church is built by Jesus, that means that he gets to call the shots in the church. He decides the rules. He decides who is in and who is out. He decides who can lead and who can preach. And what should happen when we gather together like this to worship. It's his church. He built it. He paid for it with his own blood. And so he gets to decide everything. It's not me as the minister. It's not the elders and the deacons who get to decide these things. He built the church. He owns the church. He says it is my church, and so he sets the rules. You imagine going to stay at a friend's house for a few days, and and you start rearranging their furniture. And you decide this is a horrible, horrible color on this wall. I'm, I'm going to repaint that. And maybe you decide that you think that their broadband deal isn't very good and you decide that you're going to switch their broadband provider. It wouldn't take very long unless you have an unusually patient friend before they say, Excuse me, who do you think you are? This is not your house. What you like, what you want really couldn't matter less here. This is my house. My house, my rules. Jesus is the builder of the church. And that's what he says in effect. My house, my rules. And then because the church is built by Jesus Christ with his blood, it means that it is inestimably valuable. People value things that are owned by famous people, don't they? Uh, even very trivial things. If they were owned by someone famous, then suddenly they become valuable. The guitar that Jimi Hendrix played at Woodstock Festival uh, iconically all those years ago, sold for 1.6 million pounds. That's almost understandable if you're really into Jimi Hendrix and rock music and all the rest of it. But The kitchen stool that Jimi Hendrix once sat on sold for £6,000. Charlie Chaplin's moustache that he wore in his film The Great Dictator sold for £12,000. And it wasn't so very long ago that I read about a piece of toast half eaten by the Beatle George Harrison which was being offered for sale on an auction. These things are supposed to be valuable. They're supposed to be precious just because they belong to someone famous. Well, the church is the most precious possession in the universe because it is Christ's. My church, I will build it. And perhaps some of us need to be reminded of the value of the church. Perhaps we've lost sight of that. We don't appreciate just how valuable it is because it is Christ's church. Perhaps we're too quick to criticize the church rather than weep over its weaknesses. We're going to be singing at the end of our service from Psalm 102, verse 14, where the psalmist says, speaking about the church, her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. I wonder, is that how we feel about the church of Jesus Christ? It's not perfect. Of course it's not perfect. We know that. But it is still the church of Jesus Christ. And he laid down his life for it. The builder of the church. And then thirdly, uh, let's think about the fabric of the church, the fabric, the materials of the church. And the church is built of people who love Jesus Christ. That's the fabric of the church. It's not bricks and mortar. It's people. It's people who love Jesus, who believe that Jesus is the Christ, who are living the kind of life that Jesus calls them to live for his glory and in his strength. And we see that in this passage. The beginning of the verse says, uh, Jesus says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, why does Jesus say that? Well, he says that because of what Peter has just said in verse 16. In verse 16, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think I am? Who do you believe? What do you believe about me? And Peter says, I believe that you are the Christ. You are God's Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock. The church is built, in other words, of people who can say what Peter said. I believe that Jesus of, Nazareth, this Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter from the back of beyond who lived 2,000 years ago, I believe that he's not just a carpenter. He's not just an itinerant preacher. He's not just a, a, a good teacher of moral values. I believe that he is the Christ and the son of the living God. And I am trusting in him and him alone to save me from the judgment of God that I deserve because of my rebellion against God. And I am going to obey him as my Lord. I believe that the church is Jesus' church and that my life must revolve around him. That's what the fabric of the church is. People who can say that. People who believe that with all their heart. Hangers on and nominal members who have their names on a membership roll but never show their face or rarely show their face and never get involved and they seem to have no interest at all in serving Jesus Christ. They're not part of the fabric of the church. We're not a company of perfect people. You don't need to stay in Trinity too long before you discover that. But the people here are not a bunch of hypocrites either. We are people who sincerely love the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are trying to live for him in the world as he's called us to, as consistently as we possibly can. We would be the first to admit that we don't do that perfectly. That there is a great deal of inconsistency and failure. But we are trying in the strength that God provides to live for Him in our personal lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our community. You hear it said, don't you? There are so many hypocrites in the church. I don't know if that's the case or not. I can only speak for this congregation. And all I can say is that here you will find people who are the real deal. Not perfect. Far from perfect. But sincere in their desire to live consistently for Jesus Christ. The fabric of the church. And then lastly, the guarantee of the church, the guarantee of the church. Buildings usually come with a limited guarantee, and uh, unless it's changed recently, the standard guarantee for a house is 10 years. It's not very long because builders are well aware that no matter how carefully they build and no matter how high quality the materials may be, Every building decays over time. The damp, the cold, the heat, the wind, uh, it all takes its toll on the structure. It would be very unusual, I think, to find any builder that was prepared to give a lifetime guarantee for his building. And yet that is precisely what Jesus gives us here. It's very striking words, isn't it, in verse 18. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Literally, he says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Hades is just another way of saying death. To be overcome, to be prevailed against by Hades is to die. It means to crumble into ruins and to cease to exist. And Jesus is saying here that that will never happen ever happen to this building. The church of Christ cannot and will not die. It will never cease to exist to all eternity. Why not? Well, not because of the durability of the materials. We've seen that the church is built with you and me. We're not great building materials. We are weak We are stumbling, disobedient, cowardly, selfish, flawed men and women. So how can Jesus be so confident that the church will never die? And of course the answer is that it depends on the quality of the builder. I will build my church. If these were just the words of an overconfident first century traveling carpenter turned preacher... How stupid and empty and ridiculous they would sound. But they're not, are they? They're the words of the Christ, the Son of the living God. The one who's building the church is the one who built the universe, who created everything that exists by a word. And so if Jesus says that the church will never die, then it will never die. And that is so encouraging, isn't it? And so comforting for you and for me. Christians belong to something that is utterly secure. There is no power in the universe that can destroy the church. The gates of Hades cannot prevail, shall not prevail against it. Just think how much human beings invest in security. We put so much effort, so much money into protecting ourselves. We like to know that our money is safe, that our homes are safe, that our families are taken care of should anything happen to us. Well, if you want security, you'll find it in the church of Jesus Christ. As members of Christ's church, we are in the safest possible place in the universe. Nothing, nothing, Can ultimately destroy us. Now, that's not a promise to any particular congregation or denomination. This verse does not guarantee that Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church will always exist or that the Reformed Presbyterian Church cannot die. We may or may not be here in 10 years for the 50th anniversary of these buildings. But what Jesus is saying is that you cannot extinguish the light of the church of Jesus Christ. The world and the devil have tried again and again. And Christ's Christ's church is greater. Congregations come and go. Denominations come and go. But the church of Jesus Christ suffers no reverses. There are no declining numbers. Not one single person is ever lost from the church of Jesus Christ. Not even the gates of death can defeat it. The obituary of the church has been written many, many times to the embarrassment of its authors. It cannot die. It will not die. And friends, that is so encouraging to hold on to and to remember, isn't it? Because the church, especially in our day, seems so weak. It does seem as if it is on the point of collapse because of false teaching, because of secularism and atheism and false religion and false ideologies. The church is being attacked It is being ignored. It is being mocked by the world as completely irrelevant. But Jesus says, none of these things or any other things can possibly destroy the church. Because my church, he says, is indestructible and invincible. That's so encouraging for us as individuals. Your sins and your shortcomings, your besetting sins... They will not overcome you. Your physical death will not overcome you. Death itself can only bring you into the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. The devil will not overcome you. If you are a Christian, if you are a member of the church, if you are a stone, a living stone in Christ's church, then the gates of Hades shall not prevail against you. That is an ironclad guarantee. So why does Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church exist today? It's because Jesus Christ is building his church. It's because he came to earth 2,000 years ago and gave his life, his blood on the cross for the men and the women, the young people and the children who are here today. He called us out of the world to be different from the world to belong to him, to love him, to worship him, and to live for him. And by the grace of God, that's what we seek to do day by day. And we trust we'll continue to do in the years to come. I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful assurance that we have that the Lord Jesus Christ is building his church. We thank you that we can look back not just on 40 years, uh, not even just on 130 years, but that we can look back over 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus made this declaration. And we can see how it has been fulfilled because the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone out to the ends of the earth. And we rejoice, O oh God, that today there are men and women and children from every nation under heaven who confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. We pray that you would continue to build your church here in Newton Abbey. We pray that you would build up this congregation as you have done. Uh, over the decades. We pray, Lord God, that you would uh, use us to uh, share the good news with the people of this community. We pray that they would hear this good news from our lips and that you would add them to the church. We pray that you would bring many people in this locality to confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. God's promised deliverer, the son of the living God. Call them out of the world, we pray, to live holy lives for you, to be your prized possession, we pray. Father, we thank you for this day that we have to celebrate these things together, to give thanks to you, to acknowledge that you are the one who is doing these things Uh, that all the glory belongs to you because you are the builder of the church. Father, we thank you for the food and the drink that has been provided for us. We thank you for the ladies in particular who have done so much work in preparing this meal for us. We pray that you will bless us as we eat and drink together, that we would do so to your glory, that you would bless our conversation. We pray that we would be able to encourage one another and build one another up uh, as fellow members of the Church of Jesus Christ. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.